the challenges to the reliability of the Bible, broadly speaking. There's a sense that the Bible is scientifically impossible, right? I mean, the, the world is not flat. We know these kind of things. There's a sense that the Bible is historically unreliable and that it's culturally regressive, that it advocates cultural positions that are deeply problematic and that we wouldn't really want to embody in a society today. Now, all three of these charges are serious and they're worthy of, of rigorous ex- exploration. But so that we can narrow tonight's topic to something that we can actually um, wrap our minds around and have a fruitful discussion and not kind of disperse into the ether out there, we're going to focus tonight on the issue of history and the historical reliability of the four Christian Gospels. Now, the long-held view of Christianity, going back really to the beginnings of Christianity, is that the one and only living God in fulfillment of his promises and as the climax of the story of Israel accomplished his mission of opening the door to a restored cosmos through Jesus Christ. Now, furthermore, the long historical view of Christianity has been that Jesus, the earthly Jesus, as we can know him, is the Jesus as portrayed in the four Christian Gospels. Now, I'm not talking about the difficulties of the fact that these four accounts of Jesus differ to some degree. What I'm saying is that the the Jesus of the church's faith through the centuries has been a Jesus found in the four Gospels. So the Christian faith has trusted these texts, and the Christian faith has trusted that in these texts, you can actually encounter the real Jesus. So, a key issue for anyone who's trying to ask thoughtful questions about Christianity is can we trust the Christian gospel manuscripts? I'm referring to the four books which are known by the names of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that are found in the New Testament portion of the Bible. Can we trust them? And when we began to ask these kind of questions, can we trust these documents Oftentimes, the argument about the Gospels swirls around three issues. First, their content. Can we trust what they're saying, the content of what they're saying? Second, can we trust them on a purely kind of historical level with regard to the date of the manuscripts? Third, can we trust the accuracy of the manuscripts as we have them available? Because there are no existing original manuscripts. So can we actually trust that these manuscripts that do exist today are accurate copies of the originals? Now, for the remainder of my presentation, I'm going to take each of these arguments and briefly outline the argument against the reliability of Scripture and then present evidence for the reliability of Scripture in each of these three categories. So first, is the content of the four Christian Gospels reliable? The argument against their reliability centers on the fact that the four New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are only four among dozens of Gospels written at that same time period. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not the only Gospels written. They're not the only accounts of the life of Christ written at that time. So why did these particular four make it into this thing the church calls the Bible? Now the commonly held position against the church 
on this issue is that these particular four manuscripts, these particular gospels, that they were put into the New Testament because they supported the vested interest of the church hierarchy. This is the idea that you get in Dan Brown and, and his writings, right? In the, um, the Da Vinci Code and these other books that he's written. It's the view that the only accounts of the life of Jesus that the church sanctioned were those that were supported, that supported and promoted the interest of the church. All the other accounts of the life of Jesus were discarded or suppressed or banned by the church's leaders in order to promote their own policies, to consolidate their power, to protect the status quo, and to guard their vested interest. So that's in very broad brushstrokes, not the evidence for the position, but that's the position. Now, here's the evidence, which is a bit unfair, but as a Christian who's kind of proclaimed, embodies the traditional line, I'm speaking, so I have the mic, so here we go. So here's the evidence that rejects that that hypothesis. First of all, this kind of view of the gospel manuscripts is what I would call a Nietzschean view. It's, It's the suspicion that there's really power games going on. So Nietzsche said very famously, truth is a mobile army of metaphors. That in the gospel, um, we, 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 in the gospels of the New Testament, what we really find are metaphors that are being marshaled to defend the church. Here's my problem with that. If that was the case, you would expect to see in many places in the gospels, Jesus taking sides in the debates the church was involved in, right? If you're only going to pick the ones that support your argument, you're going to pick the ones where Jesus, the big hero of this whole story, is saying the stuff that you want him to say. So, for example, there was a huge conflict in the early church with regard to the whole issue of circumcision because the early church was dominated by Jews. And they, if they had to go through the surgery, they wanted everybody else to go through the surgery, right? So you would expect to find in the Gospels Jesus weighing in on this issue because their whole national identity was at stake. And yet nowhere in any of the Christian Gospels does Jesus ever address this, the preeminent issue among the early leaders of the church, one of the preeminent issues. Now, why didn't that happen? Well, I would say that the most plausible reason that Jesus is silent on the issue is is that the early church did not feel free to fabricate things and put words in the mouth of Jesus, words that he didn't utter. Or take the crucifixion. Why would the leaders of the early church have made up the story of the crucifixion? In their culture, a crucified person was clearly a criminal. And a power-protecting church leadership would not make up the account of Jesus being crucified or of Jesus asking God to remove the cup, to take this away, begging God to do this. Or of Jesus, in the moment of his crucifixion, accusing God of abandoning him. Now, if a church is controlling the propaganda... Why would they portray this Jesus in that way? Because it it certainly put them in a negative position with regard to potential first century converts. Then there's the prominent role of women 
In the Gospels, women are the first witnesses to the resurrection. Now, here's the scandal of that. That's a society in which a woman's testimony wasn't even allowed in court. I mean, why would you put your eggs in that basket? I mean, that doesn't seem to indicate a highly propagandized, whatever. That doesn't seem to indicate deep manipulation with regard to the information flow. And And then there's the issue of the apostles themselves. In the four gospels, they are constantly depicted as lacking faith, petty. They repeatedly and miserably fail to get with the program. They're fearful. They're self-deceived, they're self-interested, they're self-protective. But the authorial point of view of the Gospels is critical of these guys. Now, these are the guys who become the heroes of the first church. I mean, this is Peter. We don't exactly see the church today holding Peter up for derision. Right, so why, why would they allow this kind of... Infer- why would anyone in the church want to play up the terrible failures of their most prominent leaders. No one would have made up such a story. Not if you're interested in starting a thing that works. So ironically, it's the other Gospels that are not in the Bible that do all of the things I've just mentioned. It's the Gospel of Thomas. It's the Gnostic Gospels. It's these other Gospels that didn't make it in. These are the Gospels that suck up to the powers that be within the Roman culture at that time. But the Christian Gospels, the ones that make it in, these are the ones that continually offend the reigning Greco-Roman paradigm. Now, that's just not making sense if you're trying to manipulate the information flow. So that's the first argument against that I really gave unfair balance to, but it's the argument against the evidence for the reliability of the Gospels. Now, a second argument involves the dating of the Gospels. The hypothesis goes as follows. The Gospels were originally oral traditions. They were passed down through the years, and as they were passed down, they evolved. And finally, long after the events actually happened, they were written down. But the original Jesus, the Jesus before this evolution, was a mystic or a teacher or a social justice crusader, but he was not divine. This whole notion of Jesus claiming divinity is only located in legendary material. So the divinity of Jesus is the stuff of legend. But the fact is that there exists compelling evidence for the high probability, if, if not the undeniability, of the Gospels being written at a time when there were still numerous living eyewitnesses. In other words, it can be demonstrated that the Christian Gospels were written within living memory of the events they recount. Mark's Gospel, for example, was written well within the lifetime of many of the actual eyewitnesses of the events it's describing. The other three, they were written in a period when living witnesses were becoming scarce. Exactly at the point in time when their testimony would perish That's when they were put into writing. Now, today, the standards, 
the standard dating of the Christian Gospels, even in the most skeptical and liberal of circles. The majority of scholars today, not talking about Christian scholars or conservative scholars, the majority of scholars who are looking at the historical evidence today, they put the Gospel of Mark being written in the 70s, Jesus dying in the 30s. This is 40 years later. Matthew and Luke in the 80s and John in the 90s. Now this means that the period between the events of the Gospel story and the writing of the Gospels is a relatively long lifetime by by the standards of that day. Now with that in mind, consider the fact that the gospel themselves actually give names of eyewitnesses. Why are they doing this? They're, 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 They're giving names of eyewitnesses in a time when the eyewitnesses can be talked to and and checked up on. So there's a passage in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 21, where Mark writes, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. Now this is a high degree of specificity if you're trying to cloak your sources. It's not, here's not only the guy, but here's his children. This is, in, in, in other words, it's kind of like Mark is saying, Alexander and Rufus, you can vouch for the truth of what I'm saying. Go ask those guys. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 6 says that Christ died, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, and he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You know, if, if I'm trying to cloak something in legend, I'm not going to add. I'm going to say, yeah, most of them are dead. You can't really find them today. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, last of all, to the one untimely born. He appeared to me. Paul, the apostle Paul is writing. You can't claim 500 eyewitnesses who are still living unless you're confident in the availability of the veracity of their testimony. Acts chapter 26, verse 26. Um, the Apostle Paul is, is talking to the king of that area. He's talking to the Roman governor in that area that's called King Agrippa. And he says, you know about these things. And I'm speaking boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped your notice. For, you have not, for these have not been done in a corner. Now, as a historical document goes, this is being written at a time... When this king can be asked. This is a very public figure that you've just outed on a conversation. And then there are hundreds of named and indicated bystanders, opponents, officials who are ready to challenge or contradict any assertions not rooted in history. Remember, Palestine is a small country. And there's another relevant point. Because the writings of the Gospels were so close to the actual historical events of the Gospels, the raw sources, the raw materials that they're basing their documents on were plentiful. In other words, the Gospel writers were able to utilize a variety of sources, many of them oral, many from eyewitnesses. They were available. Now, what does all of this mean with regard to the reliability of the Gospels? First... Think about the fact that for a highly altered, fictionalized account of an event to take hold in the public imagination, it is necessary that the eyewitnesses, and in an oral culture, it is necessary that the eyewitnesses and their children and their grandchildren have been long dead. They must be off the scene. 
so that they cannot contradict or debunk the embellishments and the falsehoods of the story. The Gospels were written far too soon for legend to occur. The New Testament documents could not say Jesus was crucified when thousands of people were still alive who knew whether he was or was not publicly crucified. If there had not been appearances after his death, if there had not been an empty tomb, if he had not made these claims and the public documents claim they happened, Christianity would have never gotten off the ground. The hearers would have simply laughed at these accounts. Second, historians normally take very seriously biographies written within a generation or two of their subjects. So it's my contention that if the people claiming the four Christian Gospels are really the stuff of legend, if they assess the historical quality of the Christian Gospels with the kind of painstaking historical work they use for other historical documents, they would be far less skeptical. Now, the third and final argument against the reliability of the four Christian Gospels. Today's Bible is essentially a collection of books that are copies of copies of copies of copies of books for whom we no longer possess the original autograph manuscripts. The original manuscripts crumbled to dust a long time ago. So an important question is, how can we be sure that today's versions are accurate copies? How can we be sure they weren't changed as they were copied down through the ages? Well, to be honest... The manuscript evidence for the New Testament as a whole and for the gospel specifically is in a completely different league than our evidence for any other document from the ancient world. Let me show you what I mean. Some of you have a note sheet. Some of this is on there. Alexander the Great. Did you know that the earliest biographies of Alexander were written by Arian and Plutarch 400 years after Alexander died. The earliest biography for Alexander the Great, the earliest biography that exists is 400 years after the date of his death. And yet the majority of historians consider those two biographies, the one by Arian and the one by Plutarch, they consider those biographies to be generally trustworthy. Now, historians all agree that legendary material about Alexander began to develop five centuries after his death because there was enough oral knowledge to stop it up until that point. So whether the Gospels were written 30 years later, if you're very conservative, or 60 years after his death, we're really, it doesn't matter at this point when we're dealing with biographic, biographic material. It's negligible. Tacitus, The Annals of Rome, uh, A.D. 116. The first six books, we only have one extant manuscript written in A.D. 850, more than 700 years. Books 11 through 16, we only have one extant manuscript written around the 11th century. Books 7 through 10, there's no extant manuscripts. Josephus, the Jewish Wars, it was written in the first century A.D., The earliest manuscript we have is a Latin manuscript from the 4th century A.D. The oldest Greek manuscripts, there's nine of them, come from the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries. The Russian manuscript comes from the 12th. There's nothing as close as, I'll show you in a minute, Homer's, the Iliad, written 800 B.C. 
The oldest manuscripts of Homer that exist today are a group of Greek manuscripts from the 2nd and 3rd centuries. This is 600. This, this is almost 1,000 years after the original. We do not have the original of the Iliad. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, which was written between the years 50 and 90 A.D., we've got a manuscript that contains five verses. It's a partial manuscript of the Gospel of John, and it dates to somewhere between 98 and 150 A.D. They, they dated it a couple of years ago based on the script, that that script of handwriting only existed at this particular time. Now, that's just a few short... The original was written somewhere in the 90s. We've got something around 98 to 150. The four Christian Gospels of the New Testament are all referenced in historical documents from the first half of the second century. There's a whole list of things. The Chester Beatty Biblical Papyra, um, discovered in 1930, contains portions of four Gospels and, and the Book of Acts from the third century A.D. This is just 200 years, a little over 200 years later. Large portions of Ada Paul's letters are there. Portions of Hebrews from around 200 A.D. Large sections of the book of Revelation. The Bodmer papyrus contains two-thirds of John from 200 A.D. Another papyrus contains portions of Luke and John from the 3rd century A.D. And when, when you come forward just a few more centuries, there's an avalanche of manuscripts. There's 306 unsealed manuscripts. These are Greek manuscripts where it's all in capital letters that all go back to the 3rd century. There's a complete New Testament in 350 A.D. In the 9th century, we have 2,856 manuscripts. All told, there are 24,000 biblical manuscripts. Nothing else in in antiquity even comes close. Um, there can be no reasonable doubt that the text of the New Testament has been reliably preserved. Sir Frederick Kenyon, former director of the British Museum, he put it this way, In no other case is the interval of time between the composition of a book and the date of the earliest manuscripts as short as it is for that of the New Testament when it comes to the books of antiquity. So let me kind of wrap it all up. The Gospels, I, I would propose to you, present a portrayal of Jesus which is firmly grounded in real history. They embody the testimonies of the eyewitnesses. Now, not of course without editing and interpretation, but in a way that is substantially faithful to how the eyewitnesses themselves told it. Since the gospel writers were more or less in direct contact with these eyewitnesses. They were not removed from them by a long process of anonymous translation, trend, um, of anonymous kind of evolution like we have with Alexander the Great's biographies. In the case of one of the Gospels, that of the Gospel of John, it's an actual eyewitness writing the Gospel. We have no eyewitness to Alexander the Great's life. Now, by calling the Gospel testimonies of eyewitnesses, I'm not saying that they are testimony instead of history, but I'm saying that they are the particular type of history that we call testimony. Now, this is really important for a number of reasons. For example, an irreducible feature of testimony is that it asks to be trusted. This does not mean that it asks to be trusted uncritically, but it does mean that testimony should not be treated as credible only to the extent that it can be independently verified. Trusting testimony is not an irrational act of faith. 
that leaves your critical rationality aside. On the contrary, the rationally appropriate way of responding to authentic testimony is trust. The gospel is understood as testimony. This is an entirely appropriate means of access to the historical reality of Jesus. Historically speaking, testimony is a unique and a uniquely valuable means of access to the historical reality. So understanding the Gospels as testimony, we can recognize that this particular view of the meaning of history is not an arbitrary imposition on the objective facts, but this is the way the witnesses perceive the history. Now, with that being said, the historical reliability of the Gospels cannot compel faith. Because historical evidence is not the same as meaning. Right? The argument about the meaning of why Napoleon invaded X, Y, and Z is different than did Napoleon invade X, Y, or Z. The historical reliability of the Gospels cannot compel faith because historical evidence cannot provide theological meaning of, of, of somebody's actions. It's possible to establish the plausibility of the empty tomb. And it's possible, I would argue, that if, if, we, if I had time, and this was the purpose of tonight, to establish the historical plausibility of Jesus rising from the dead. I think there's good historical evidence to, to say that's the most plausible answer to a whole series of issues. But... That historical argument cannot prove what Christians say about that. You see, Christians say that Jesus died and rose from the dead to pay for our sins. To put it another way, that Jesus was crucified, that might be indubitable. I believe it is. But that in and of itself is no more significant than the fact that undoubtedly so were thousands of others in his time. That's it for me.